You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. Matthew chapter 3, we're in a Sunday morning series called Hold Firm, Getting a Grip on the Confession of Our Faith. Um, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday and the two Sundays following that, uh, we'll take a break from this series and... uh, go into a short Christmas series called Vintage Faith. Uh, Hope has arrived, and we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John particularly, and uh, not just the incarnation of Christ, but uh, Scripture tells us there in John's Gospel chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, talking of course about the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at that together over the next three weeks. Then we'll come back to this series, Hold Firm, Getting a Grip on the Confession of Our Faith. In this series, uh, we are studying the biblically-based doctrines which guide our faith and practice, particularly as expressed and clarified in our Baptist faith and message. I remind you that uh, the foundational text for the series is actually found in Paul's writing to Titus, giving him the qualifications for church leadership. He says that a pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We've been in this series for a number of weeks now. Already we've looked at uh, the article on the scriptures. Uh, We've looked at the article on God or theology proper. Uh, And then that broken down further into God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as we believe God is uh, one God distinct in three persons without division of nature, essence, or being. Then we looked at the article on man, Uh, that is how we came to be, and how is it that God would have us relate to him. We've looked at the article on salvation, on God's purpose of grace, on the church, on baptism and the Lord's Supper, on the Lord's Day. And then, of course, a couple of weeks ago, Kyle Essery did a great job of kicking off the Lottie Moon season for us and uh, took us forward into Article 11 on evangelism and missions. And so this morning, we're going to look together Articles 9 and 10, uh, which will now kind of bring us up to uh, where we've been uh, with their Article 11, of course, and then we'll come back to this. I do want you to see the wording of these two articles, and I've put them together Uh, because they fit together so well, and I think you'll see that here in just a moment. So look at the wording of Article 9 of the Baptist Faith and Message on the Kingdom. It's interesting that in earlier Baptist confessions, there was no statement about the kingdom. Um, It was only some of these later uh, confessions that we find uh, wording like this, and so it's very noteworthy for us today. The kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty over the universe his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. The full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this age." Uh, There's some important words that are worth noting uh, in that article. Uh, We know that uh, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated uh, through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but it has not yet been consummated. And we're certainly going to see that this morning and how that relates to last things. And so that is Article 10. And that article reads this way, God, in his own time and his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. 
According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Now, these two statements, uh, the article on the kingdom... Uh, It contains mainly the idea of God's sovereignty, his rule over the hearts of people. Uh, The article on last things focuses on judgment, of course, judgment day or final judgment, which includes both condemnation for God's enemies and vindication for his people. Well, it's interesting that of these two, uh, last things or eschatology or uh, prophecy we sometimes refer to it as uh, seems to be what reaches out and grabs our attention the most. Uh, maybe that's because we understand that when the Lord returns, um, final judgment is soon to follow. Now with those thoughts in mind, I want us to look at our text of Matthew chapter 3 this morning and what we find here. Uh, in one of these earliest chapters of Matthew's gospel is this guy named John the Baptist. Uh, He was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you'll notice in in most of your Bibles it says something along the lines of John the Baptist prepares the way. Uh, And so he is setting the stage, so to speak, for the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was it that he was preaching? Well, verse 2 tells us, Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that kingdom language. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and what was it he was crying? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so you have here John the Baptist preaching as a forerunner for the coming Messiah. And he taught about the kingdom. Now, the Gospels summarize Jesus' ministry in Galilee in much the same way as they summarize John's teaching uh, in Judea and here at, um, particularly in the region of the the Jordan River. Uh, John's teaching was the same as Jesus. Uh, Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does that mean for us? Uh, In light of of that teaching, uh, the kingdom comes and is a present reality. It's a present reality with the earthly ministry of Jesus. The kingdom is at hand. It is here. It has approached. And yet there will be a future consummation someday. And so we could say it this way. It's now, but not yet. It's now, but not yet. There is a present reality uh, through the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. But there is also a future reality. There's a future consummation someday. And so there is a present reality and a future reality as it relates to the kingdom. And so in light of that, Jesus and John both said, repent, repent. Now, whenever we think of repentance, we typically think of it in a negative sense. Uh, That is to repent of some evil, sinful behavior, some bad behavior. But that's really only a part of repentance. 
True repentance is, yes, to turn from sinful activity, sinful behavior, but it is to turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we often use the terminology, we turn from our sin to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what true repentance is all about. So it's not just a feeling sorry that I did something wrong or feeling bad that I got caught doing something wrong. It is not merely turning away from evil things. If that's all it was, then we would have to wonder, well, what if I turn to something that's equally evil (laughs) in turning away from that activity? It's as Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, abhor what is evil while you cling to what is good. Uh, That's the idea uh, behind repentance. And so that's the language that's used here. The primary focus of repentance is positive. To turn to something, to turn to someone. Theologically, it is to turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the natural consequence of turning to God in faith is to turn away from sin. In other words, as we turn to faith in God through Christ, then we learn progressively through sanctification to hate what God hates, to abhor what God hates, while we love and cling to what God loves. Uh, So that's the idea. The primary focus is turning toward someone, not necessarily just turning away from something. And so the invitation then, in light of the kingdom, is to turn to the king, to enter into the kingdom. The king has a kingdom. There's an invitation, an opportunity to enter into God's kingdom, into his rest, to become a citizen of the kingdom. And so I hope this morning that you can truthfully say that your citizenship is really not here in the good old U.S. of A. Your citizenship is truly in heaven. Okay, We are pilgrims just passing through. This world is not our home. Uh, And so if you feel especially attached to this world in the sense that you are in love with all things related to this world, and that's all that you can focus on, uh, then you might need to change your focus. Uh, Because biblically, we are consistently challenged to turn our focus to eternal things, to not live for the temporal. I mean, you look at just the news that's going on right now. How many people are losing those things that are temporal? You think of the poor people in California right now, as we watch acres and acres, thousands upon thousands of acres destroyed, homes, buildings, all these things just gone. People returning to, to their place of residence to find it's just, it's, just, uh, it's just ashes. And so the things of this world do not last forever. They're not eternal. And so we should have a then kingdom focus. And that's the idea. Uh, and so uh, what will result uh, when we truly uh, enter the kingdom? What does that really mean? Uh, If we accept that invitation to come into the kingdom, what will happen in my life? Well, that's what is stated here in verse number three. Comes in John. Of course, uh, Isaiah is quoted here. He says, make ready, uh, quite literally, the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so turning to the kingdom results then in prepared ways and straight paths. This is not a statement about a literal road that we would build. The the terms way and path refer to one's life, to one's lifestyle. And so it's, it's referring to our lives and the way that we would order our lives, the priorities by which uh, we live. And so since the Lord is coming and judgment with him, and since the opportunity exists right now to enter into his kingdom, Uh, To to enter in, I must bring my life under the authority of of the king, and my life must be a straight life according to the king's authority, according to the king's principles, according to uh, the life that the king intends for me to live. 
So I need to live a holy and righteous life right now because it's a present reality. So what that means, what that means is I need to be about the business of the kingdom until the king returns and I have to give an account. And so you kind of see how these two articles fit together, that of the kingdom and the last things. Now, all the other issues related to the kingdom and last days or eschatology or end times or whatever you want to call it, they'll work themselves out. Just as God has determined, they'll work themselves out. And it'll happen exactly as God has predetermined, whether I figure it all out or not. Now, you say, well, how will it happen? I don't know. I really don't know with certainty. Uh, I'm having a difficult enough time figuring out what he wants me to do right now, let alone figuring out all of the chronological events that lead up to the consummation of the kingdom. Right, now I've studied those things. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to study prophecy or end times or uh, you know, apocalyptic literature of scripture or any of those kind of things. But you've got to keep these things in perspective. We naturally want to know as it relates to end times, to the last, all those things, last things, when will it all happen? Again, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I calendar a lot of things. Uh, I, I've, I've been working on my 2018 calendar over the last couple of weeks, and I've put a lot of stuff on my calendar. One of the things that I have not yet put on my calendar is the return of Christ, okay? I, I, I don't know when that will be. I'm anticipating it. I, I'm looking forward to it. I have a longing for that, but I can't put that on my calendar. And again, I'm, I'm having a difficult, enough, a difficult enough time redeeming the current time because the days are evil. And so this one thing I know if I'm found to be a faithful steward now, and I'm about the work of the kingdom, and the king of the kingdom, then it will be a great day when my king returns and sits on his throne. It's going to be a great day. Um, and so there are some questions that naturally arise from these two articles. So I want us to ask and answer uh, from God's word those questions today, if we could do that together. The first question is this, when is the kingdom? When is the kingdom? Now, as we've already discussed, the New Testament teaches that there are two aspects concerning the time of the kingdom. On one hand, the kingdom is a future reality. And we see that in Matthew chapter 25, where uh, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that'll be very different than his first coming, than his incarnation, right? Christ came first in humility, right? But when he comes again, he's coming in glory, He's coming in glory. We're going to know for certain that the king has come. The king is coming, as we sing. Right? So he, he will come and he will sit on his glorious throne. And so here Jesus showed that the consummation of the kingdom, the ultimate realization of the kingdom, was a future event. It is yet to come. It's a future reality for which believers have waited, really, since the ascension of Christ after his resurrection. When exactly this will happen, we don't know. But it is coming in the future. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Now, there are a lot of things that we don't know related to the timing and the chronology of all of that. But we can know with certainty he's coming back because he said he was coming back. Okay, that's a promise we cling to. Now, not only is the kingdom a future reality, but it is also a present reality. We can see this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, where Jesus stated, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Jesus taught that even though there is a future aspect of the kingdom, his earthly ministry inaugurated the kingdom. So the kingdom is also a present reality because he established it at that time. And we live waiting for the future consummation of the kingdom. So it is both a present reality and a future reality. I wonder, are you a citizen of the kingdom? You say, well, how, how would I do that? Do I have to, it, well, you would turn from your sin, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Return from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And you establish your heavenly citizenship. So that answers the question, when is the kingdom? But then there's still the question, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? When we, and our finite way of thinking, want to know what a kingdom, we normally think of boundaries, right? What are the boundaries of this kingdom? How do we know that we've entered into the kingdom? Are now we outside of the kingdom? Are we, those kind of things. Well, the Bible teaches that there is both a physical and a spiritual aspect of the kingdom. In Revelation chapter 21, John, the revelator, he described a day when, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And God's dwelling will be with men forever, and the peoples of the earth will come and go in the new Jerusalem. So there is certainly a physical reality of the kingdom. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. I don't know that God had a physical throne sitting on the earth, but we certainly see there that there was a period of time when God's kingdom reigned over the earth and the people of the earth. But if you read a little bit further into the book of Genesis there, you get into chapter 3 and you find what's known as the fall, and we see there that people rebelled, turned away from God, and so we then look forward to the day when his kingdom will become that reality of rule over the earth once again. So as we study biblical history, uh, what do we find? Well, there was a time when God raised up a nation, the nation of Israel, right? Well, that's been in the news this past week, hasn't it? As our own president um, affirmed uh, the city of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Okay, so a lot of people wondering, what is the biblical significance of, uh, of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? And, and, and why not Tel Aviv and, and all, all of these sorts of things? Well, uh, that's because, uh, because in Scripture we see certainly God raising up a nation. Uh, we see the history of those people throughout the Old Testament. Um, consequently, then people continually want to dwell on some sort of a geopolitical aspect of the kingdom. Uh, is it a particular nation? Is it a particular earthly kingdom? Uh, where in the world is it? What people group uh, is, is God's people? Uh, and we want to focus on this geopolitical aspect of the kingdom to this day. But the Bible teaches that in terms of a practical working out in the lives of believers, the kingdom at this point is primarily a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual reality. We do look forward to the time when all creation is subject again to the physical rule of God's kingdom. But in the meantime, while we wait for that future consummation, the kingdom is primarily a spiritual reality. And that's why, while we're here, we're engaged in what's called spiritual warfare. Why is that? Because there are, what, rulers and principalities and all those sorts of things that are, that are trying to gain control of this world, right? Uh, that's why we continually see this world heading in a trajectory that would lead it away from God and the things of God. 
And so there's this, this constant battle going on. Well, in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus, remember, was on trial before Pilate. And Pilate asked him a very important question. He said, are you, in fact, a king? And I guess with that, he could say, do you have a kingdom? Are you a king? And Jesus said, in response to that question, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servant would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So for practical purposes, for us believers today, the kingdom is a spiritual reality. It is God's rule in the hearts and lives of his people working in and through his people. When is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? Now that brings us to this matter of last things. Last things, the end times. And by now you have probably noticed what is not said in this article in the Baptist Faith and Message. If you know anything about eschatology or eschatological studies or end time studies or prophetic studies, if you've spent any time uh, navigating your way through the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, for example, Ezekiel, uh, other books, then, then, then normally you would hear uh, some words, some terms, okay? But I want you to notice the things that are not mentioned here in this article of the Baptist Faith and Message. You notice there's no mention of the day of the Lord. There's no mention of Daniel's 70th week. There's no mention of the tribulation. There's no mention of the Antichrist. There's no mention of the false prophet or the millennium for that matter. The Baptist faith and message does not discuss the number of comings of Christ. Okay? It doesn't mention the number of resurrections. It doesn't mention the number of judgments. All areas of disagreement among Bible-believing Christians. And so if, if you delve into a prophetic study, you will certainly uh, come across terminology like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-tribulational, post-tribulational. I, the, you'll hear words like the rapture and the millennial reign, all of these sorts of things. All of those things are missing from this statement uh, on the Baptist faith and message. There's a reason for that. This is a broad and generic expression about end times that people from differing understandings of end times can endorse with a joyful and a unified spirit. So again, the Baptist faith and message is not necessarily intended to divide us. It's intended to unify us. Now one of the things that we cover in our new member orientation is the fact that uh, we're not a bunch of little minions running around here. And Brother Mike says, you must believe what I believe or you can't be a part of this fellowship. We don't say that. Um, I, I happen to know for a fact that there are some people within this, this church body who uh, do not view eschatology the way that I do in terms of its timing and some of the things related to it, and, and, and that's okay. We can discuss those matters, we can, we can look at scripture together and all that, but we're not going to be obsessed over those matters. We're not going to let those things divide us as it relates to our kingdom work, and that's what I want you to see uh, through the remainder of this morning's message. We do know this, the end will certainly be the time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that is not for salvation, that is an affirmation of his lordship, okay? And so it will be a time when we truly understand that we're all sinners, that none of us deserve heaven. It'll be a time when we begin to comprehend how truly great God's gift of salvation is, and it'll be a time when believers will be vindicated and unbelievers will be punished. Now again, eschatology, end times, last things, 
it seems to consume the thoughts of many people. Uh, I've known of people that, that, that are so uh, end times minded and so end times focused that they're really no good in the present. Uh, and we've talked about this before. Anytime you look at a prophetic text, you've got to be careful uh, as you look at eschatology that we not interpret scripture in the light of the headlines. You know, there's people who are obsessed over these things, and every time they see a news report, they're wondering, where's that in the Bible? Where's North Korea in the Bible? Where, where's this, this, this long-range missile that this crazy guy just fired? Where's that in the Bible? It, surely that's in there somewhere. It's, where's America in, in end times prophecy? That, that, that kind of thing. We've got to be very careful as it relates to uh, these kinds of things. Again, I'm not suggesting it's wrong to study end times prophecy or eschatology or or any of those things. We just can't become consumed with these things. Now, Joel 2 indicates that the day of the Lord will be a great and terrible time. Make no mistake about it. It's a time greatly longed for, but also a time to be greatly dreaded. Uh, it'll be a time of judgment, both condemnation for unbelievers and vindication for believers. Now, for unbelievers, it'll be a consuming judgment. For believers, it will be a purifying judgment. And for believers, uh, it will be a time not only of reward, but possibly a loss of reward, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. So the New Testament teaches that a healthy dose of fear of appearing before God's judgment seat, which we know as the bema, the judgment seat, is beneficial for the life of the believer. If, if I know with certainty, based upon the authority of Scripture, that someday I'm going to stand before God and give an account... For those things that I have done, whether they were done in the flesh or they were done in the spirit, remember how it talks about how that some of those things will, will, will last for eternity, but some things will burn like wood, hay, and stubble. Because I may have done some good things, but I may have done it with the wrong heart attitude or the wrong motivation, or I was just trying to get recognition for myself. And so, yes, th those things will be called into judgment. We will stand before God and give an account at the judgment seat of Christ or the big man. That's different from the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is reserved for unbelievers. That'll be a very different kind of judgment. So if you're here this morning and you have truly turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you can look forward to a day when you will stand before God as your judge. Okay? Now, that should cause you to have a sense of awe and reverence and respect, and it should call you to a life of holiness knowing that you're going to give an account for your life and the things that you have done uh, while you were in the flesh. Now again, we may disagree as to the exact timing of, of how all of this transpires, but we cannot escape the New Testament's teaching that we will ultimately appear before God's judgment seat. Not necessarily something that we like to dwell on a whole lot. But understanding with certainty that the end is coming and that it is primarily about judgment should impact us in such a way that we desire to live holy right now. And judgment, both, both condemnation and vindication, is the central focus of the last things. What about last things? Now, what about chronology? When it comes to last things... It seems that many people prefer to focus on timing and chronology. Uh, after all, if, if this is really going to come down, if this is really going to happen, wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit of a heads up to know when it's going to happen, right? 
so that, uh, like we do with many things in life, uh, that we can do things right at the last minute and get everything right, huh? I mean, wouldn't it be great to know that, you know, on a particular day, Jesus is coming back so I can get my house in order, do everything that I need to do, and I can be ready for that. Well, there's a reason that, that, that Scripture makes it clear we don't know with certainty when that time is. Uh, wouldn't it be terrible uh, to be found, to be caught off guard doing something that would dishonor the king? Right? So in light of that and the uncertainty of, of when all this is going to transpire should drive us toward holiness and living for him. Now, this is not something new to our age. The chronology of end times was also a fixation uh, of, the, of the thoughts of the disciples. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse number 6, when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, okay, he gathered his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and you remember there that the disciples asked a question. They said, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now remember, they thought of these things in a little different way. Now I can understand the disciples' question confusion at that time. Because remember, the disciples always had difficulty with Jesus as Messiah. Okay, What he taught and what he actually did as opposed to what they expected out of the Messiah and the kingdom. Okay, They continually wondered when it was that he was going to raise up an army and march into Jerusalem and throw off the shackles of Roman rule and take the throne of David and restore uh, proper worship in the temple. That was how they thought of the kingdom. And they continually asked about this throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. And I can understand their confusion uh, on the issue at this particular point. Remember, Jesus had given his disciples parables about a master that was going on a trip. And while he was gone, he left his stewards with work to do. And then one day the master returned and the stewards had to give an account. Remember that? Jesus had told his disciples that he was going somewhere that they could not go with him. This was a little confusing to them. It baffled them. And so they wondered if he planned to go out among the Gentiles and they naturally wondered where he was going that they couldn't go with him. And then something happened. Jesus died. Jesus died. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're one of his disciples. You, you've left everything, sold everything, family, business, and all that to attach yourself and to follow as your master and Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's died. Leading up to this, you're thinking that you're going to get to be a part of this amazing kingdom that he's going to set up here on earth. And then he died. And we know that he was in the tomb. On the third day he rose. Now he's back. And here they are on the Mount of Olives, where not too long before they had began the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And from where they expected the Messiah to make his triumphal march into Jerusalem to take the throne of David. And so you can understand that at this time, they might have wondered, maybe this is it. You can imagine them talking to one another. Don't you think maybe this is it? This is the time. I'm probably going to be like a you know, master sergeant in the new kingdom. <laughs> I'm going to have a position or something probably, right? Like, this is going to be awesome. This is what they're thinking. But that's not the way it went down. No, no, they're thinking maybe he went away for a little while and now he's come back to restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And so they asked, is this the time? And Jesus' response is critically important, even as it relates to us. 
Because if you look at Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we often forget what verse 7 says. We love Acts 1-8 so much that we tend to pluck it out of context and we say, well, you'll receive, we like the power thing, man, give me the power to be a witness. But you got to remember what Jesus said to his disciples before verse 8. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, the epochs, maybe translated that way in your version of the Bible. It's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. In other words, you got work to do. You got work to do. <laughs> Most scholars agree that when those two terms, times and seasons or times and epochs, are used together, what they are referring to is a chronological series of events leading up to a conclusion. And so what did Jesus say? He said, concerning a chronological series of events that lead up to a conclusion, you will not know. Now that rubs up against our humanity big time, doesn't it? Because we like to be in the know. It's just human nature. I want to know. I want to know how this thing's going down. I want to know all the details. I don't want to be out of the loop. I want to know. And Jesus says, you're not going to know. How many times do we read those words and our response is basically, well, I think I'm smart enough to read the Bible and figure out the chronological series of events that lead up to a conclusion. And Jesus essentially responds back, I'm telling you, you won't know. And we say, well, I think I will. And he says, no, you won't. <laughs> and so we get this little uh, disagreement going. Now, in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus stated that the angels... The angels don't know when the end is going to happen. Not even the, the son knows when that will take place. Only the father knows. But apparently we tend to think that we're a little sharper than the angels and perhaps even Jesus himself because we act like if we study hard enough, we can figure it all out. No. Instead of being able to figure out the chronology, Jesus said that when the Spirit came upon his disciples, they would be witnesses. He taught that for his followers, chronology is not to be the fixation of their minds. But being about the work of the kingdom, that should be your fixation. Now again, it's not to suggest that we shouldn't consider these things, we shouldn't study these things, but we can't become so fixated on it that we're no presently good. We're not presently good in this world. And this is right in line with what the Apostle Paul taught as well. The church throughout the ages have been fixated on chronologies and conclusions. But if you look at what Paul wrote to, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, remember he had been comforting the Thessalonians there concerning believers who had died before the return of Jesus. They apparently were wondering, they were concerned, they were worried that maybe they had missed out on the consummation of the kingdom because they hadn't physically lived long enough to see Jesus return. So Paul wrote to them and he said, he said, he said no. He said, they're not going to miss out on the consummation of the kingdom. So he told them of some things that would occur when Jesus returned. We refer to these as signs of the times. So the church throughout the ages has studied what Paul wrote. And we study what Paul wrote. In, and, and we conclude that we can develop a chronology of the end based upon what Paul wrote. What is interesting is that at this point, right after he wrote about some of these events associated with Jesus' return, Paul stated in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, Now, see if this language doesn't sound familiar, now concerning times and seasons, now concerning times and epochs, 
there are those two words again. In other words, concerning a chronological series of events that leads up to a conclusion, Paul said there is no need to write. Hmm, that's interesting. And yet we look at what Paul wrote and we think, well, I can come up with a chronological series of events that leads to a conclusion. I can figure this out. I can, I can unlock the code. Jesus said, you won't know. Paul said, there's no need to write about it. First Thessalonians, no need to, to, to write this chronology because he stated in verse number two there following, he said, the day of the Lord will come, get this, just like a thief in the night. Now we have something to compare it to, don't we? Okay, we understand this kind of terminology in our English language. When we use the words like and as, we normally call that a, a simile, right? Or there's a comparison coming. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying this whole thing is going to come down kind of like a thief in the night. Okay, now, my family and I, we have never personally been robbed, thank the Lord. Um, I know for a fact that there's some here who have been robbed. You've had something stolen from you. Uh, I've got a pretty good suspicion. I, I don't have a criminal mind, I don't think. Um, but uh, I do know this. I, in, I know some things about the way that, that thieves operate. They don't typically like send you an email to let you know they're coming, do they? Like, you know... Hey, just wanted to let you know that my buddies and I, we're planning to rob your place next Thursday at 9 o'clock. Okay? They, they probably don't send you a letter, okay, saying that they're coming on such and such a date at such and such time. And even on, on the night itself or, or at the time of the robbery, they don't sit out at the end of your driveway honking their horn and yelling through a bullhorn, we're coming. They don't do that, do they? So that's why Paul used this imagery. You want to know how and when the day of the Lord will come? Well, then you figure out how a thief comes to your house. How many thieves do some of these things as a, as a warning or, or to let you know that they're... No, they don't do that. No. And now we all know that a thief can come. Okay, we know that. So we, we take certain measures to, to, to make certain that they can't get into our home or, or you know, get our belongings. And so we'll use a lock and an alarm system and all, all these different things. Now, I do think that his coming will catch some off guard just a bit. The Bible does teach us, however, that even though we do not know the exact moment and series of events of his coming, his arrival doesn't have to catch us off guard because we know that he's coming at some point. Paul went on to say there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 8, that this knowledge about Jesus' coming causes his people, here it is again, to live holy lives in light of his coming. In light of his coming. And these ideas are consistent with the parables of Scripture, where we see that we're to always be waiting and watching and working, all the while knowing that at any moment, the king could return. The king could return. So you've got to ask yourself, what is it that I want to be found doing when he returns? If I fully believe that he could come back at any moment, I want to be found doing those things which please and honor and glorify him that are advancing his kingdom. When I was a basketball coach uh, a number of years ago, we would, uh, about every other practice or so, we would work on end-game scenarios. In football, they call this like the, you know, the two-minute offense or whatever. 
You know, what are we going to do in the final minutes of a game if we're down by so many points and we've got so much time on the clock and all those things? So I would give assignments. Like I had an assistant who was responsible to know how many timeouts we had left all the time. I didn't want anybody. I didn't want to call a timeout when I didn't have any left and get a technical or anything like that. Um, I, that same assistant was to know how many fouls we have to give at any given time. So I could turn to him, how many fouls do we have to give? You know, those kind of things. So we would work through these scenarios. But we only did that for a portion of our practices. And we didn't even work on those things in every single practice. Now it was important to, to think of those things because you had a pretty good idea as a coach that there's going to probably come a time where I'm in a close game and it's going to come down to the wire and I don't want to get out coached in those final minutes. But how weird would it be if I called a timeout in the first quarter and I call my team over to the bench and I say, okay, guys, here's what I want to talk about during this timeout. I want to talk about what's going to happen late in the fourth quarter of this game. Okay, can we do that right quick? My players would all be like, what are you talking about? Like, we would expect you to help us make adjustments right now so that we can score more points than our opponent and we don't have to worry about all that stuff at the end. Right? Well, what a lot of Christians want to do today is they want to get consumed with how it's all going to go down in the end. Like, I got to get this all figured out. I got to have it just, I got to make sure that I'm, you know, I've got my, you know, and all these kinds of things. And we spend so much time fixated on late in the fourth quarter that we don't know how to live in the first, second, third quarter. And we aren't living for the Lord in the first, second, and third quarter. I, I can't tell you how it's all going to come down. I can't tell you the exact timing of how it's all going to happen. I can't do that. Now, I've studied scripture enough to, uh, to have a position on some of these things. But the point of what we're talking about this morning is for us to know with certainty that Jesus is coming back. We don't know all the details of that, exactly when and what that's all going to look like. But every single one of us needs to be ready for that. Because it could happen before this day ends. Jesus could come back. And I wonder, are you, in light of his return, a citizen of the kingdom? Are you a citizen of the kingdom? It's a present reality, and we're looking forward to a future consummation. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.